Luke chapter 18. I have a college friend who was on The Price is Right, which, um, you know, I don't even know if kids know about The Price is Right. It's a game show. It was on forever. And anyway, uh, The Price is Right. And basically, there's huge lines of folks waiting outside the studio, and they all want to be on the show. And what happens is, it's probably pretty typical for game shows, I guess, there's sort of guys that work for the show that are walking up and down the line that are trying to figure out, okay, which one of these people is going to be a good contestant? So people do all sorts of crazy things, and they wear T-shirts, and they have signs and stuff like that. And uh, and my buddy, he made a sign that said he would do a backflip if they picked him. And he thought, okay, maybe this will be something. And so they, they come over to him, and they saw the sign, and, um, and he did a backflip, and then they put him on the show. So he was a contestant on the show, and he showed us the videotape, and, and it, was pretty, it was pretty awesome. So that's, that's how he, he got on the show. He, he knew how to get them to stop at him when they were walking through the line of people. Well, the two stories we're looking at this morning in the Gospel of Luke have these two men that get Jesus to stop for them. So there's all sorts of crowds of people, but he stops for these two men. And of course, this is every person's greatest need in the universe. The thing we need more than anything else is Jesus. More than anything else. So there's, there's nothing more important than seeing what needs to happen in order for Jesus to stop for us because it's our greatest need. So hear the word of the Lord, Luke 18, 35 through chapter 19, verse 10. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, so, so how did these two men get Jesus to stop for them? Well, the easiest way to answer the question is to see what the two, the two stories have in common. So he stops for both men. What do the two stories have in common? Now, in terms of the men Jesus stops for, they don't have much in common. Not much in terms of worldly standards. Look at the first man, chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So the first man is blind. He's so destitute that this is what it's come to. He has to sit there and beg for money. He doesn't have any other way to provide for himself. So that's the first guy. Look at the second guy, chapter 19, verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So the second guy has a a lucrative job. We're told he's rich. 
He's a chief tax collector. You guys might remember this. Tax collectors, not only was it a good living on its own, but they also took money off the top. And it was sort of understood that they did that. The Roman Empire was fine with that. The Jewish people hated them for it, but they did it anyway. So this guy had a lot of money. So their day-to-day life, it couldn't have looked much different. So if you looked at these two guys, radically different lives, different places in society. But again, Jesus tops for both of them. So, so what's the connection? What do they have in common? Well, what they both have in common is they realize their intense spiritual need. That's what they have in common. They're both spiritual beggars. Now, now right off the bat, we should recognize something here. And that is that, that there's no connection between material wealth and spiritual wealth. So, so oftentimes people don't understand that, but, but they think since they're doing well in the world materially, so they have money, they have health, they have a good family, they sort of transpose that and think, oh, that means I'm doing well spiritually. There's even churches that teach that, that teach that those two things go together, that teach that part of the gospel is that you won't have to go through suffering in this life. Don't go to a church like that. If you have family that goes to a church like that, pray that you would have wisdom to be able to show them in the word why they shouldn't go to a church like that. That's a, it can be a false gospel. It's at least an incredibly depressing place to be as a Christian. And of course, doesn't model what scripture says. So it's easy to do it though. We understand the draw and folks like us even do it sometimes. You'll think, okay, things are going well for me. So the Lord must be pleased with me, right? because my family's doing well and I'm doing well. It's easy to do that, but, but those two things don't go together. The Bible teaches us there's no necessary connection between material health and spiritual health. In Revelation 3, John has to correct this thinking in the church at Laodicea. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Of course, John's talking about their spiritual poverty. They had material assets, but they were spiritually impoverished. So we see this clearly in these two stories. We have these two men who realize they are spiritually needy, couldn't be more different in terms of worldly wealth. We've got a tax collector, had a good base salary, was also dishonest, took money off the top. So he does well financially, but then we've got this blind man who's so destitute, he's having to beg for money. But, he, but again, what's important is they, they both realize that they're destitute, they're impoverished spiritually. Look again at what the blind man says to Jesus, verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That word mercy is important. What's this guy asking for when he says, have mercy on me? Well, mercy is when someone gives you something you don't deserve to have. So this guy is blind. He would like to not be blind. But when Jesus stops, he doesn't tell Jesus he deserves a better situation. He doesn't tell Jesus, hey, I deserve to be able to see. He doesn't, he doesn't claim that kind of right. And that's because he, he probably knows he doesn't deserve to have sight. It's not something that he deserves. But see, he's not asking Jesus for something that he deserves. He knows he doesn't deserve anything good from God, just like we don't deserve anything good from God. Now, when he asks Jesus for mercy, he's asking Jesus to be kind and gracious to him, even though he doesn't deserve it, to give him this thing that, that he doesn't deserve on his own merits. Again, in other words, he knows he's impoverished spiritually. He knows he doesn't have anything to, to 
need to be given this sight. We see the same thing with Zacchaeus when Jesus asked to come to his house. Chapter 19, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So right here, Luke lets us know Zacchaeus is, is not a good man. Again, he's a tax collector. In Jesus' day, that meant you were dishonest. That meant you stole money from people. You would cheat them out of their money. So, so he is, like the people say here, he's a man who is a sinner. But, and here's the reason why Jesus came to his house, Zacchaeus knows he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. That's made clear once they get to the house because of what he tells Jesus. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So Zacchaeus commits to these corrections in his life. He's, he's got to do things differently moving forward. Apparently up until this point, he had not cared for those around him, right, who, who needed financial help. Up until this point, he had spent his career defrauding people. He admits to Jesus, but now he wants to make those things right. The biblical word for that kind of thing is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is, is when someone recognizes they've been sinning in some particular way, and now out of love for the Lord, they turn. They pivot. They, they turn, they confess that pattern of sin, and they work to turn away from it. That's what Zacchaeus is doing here in verse 8. And the only people who repent are people who know they are sinners. So, so even though these two men's external lives couldn't look, look much different, they both understand they're spiritual beggars. And see, the truth is we are too. So you and I are spiritual beggars. In fact, you, did, you didn't even just become spiritually poor the first time you consciously sinned. No, you were spiritually poor from the moment you were conceived. Listen to the way David says it in Psalm 51, verse 5. This is the Christian Standard Bible's translation. Psalm 51, verse 5. Indeed, David says, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. See, because we're born into this world with a sinful nature, we're spiritually bankrupt, even as infants. And, and if that's hard for you to believe, then, then just look at the evidence. Because the things sinners do is sin. So in your life, when did you begin to sin? Well, it was as soon as you were given the opportunity, right? That's what sinners do. That's what all of us do. That sinful tendency, that, that didn't come from outside of you. It came from inside of you, from, from your heart. We, we sin because we're born with a sinful nature, and that makes us spiritually bankrupt. So we, we have a need for righteousness, but we don't have the resources inside of ourselves to, to meet that need. We're spiritually poor. So the question for you is, do you realize this about yourself? Do I realize this about myself? Do you realize, as we say it in the first article of our church covenant, do you realize that your biggest problem in this world is your own sin? Because it is. It's easy to forget that, but, but that's our biggest problem. And as we're going to see in the rest of our passage, Jesus will be of no help to us unless we realize this. Well, again, this is exactly what the blind man and Zacchaeus understand about themselves. They understand it really well. You can usually tell how hungry someone is by the lengths they're, they're willing to go for food. Well, look at the lengths these men go in order to get to Jesus. Look at the first man, verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. 
So this guy's obviously heard about Jesus. And like we talked about a minute ago, he, he believed Jesus was what he needed. And so when he hears Jesus is walking back, he, he hollers for him. He calls out for Jesus. And the title he gives Jesus is significant. He calls him Jesus, son of David. Well, David, most of you probably know, was Israel's greatest king. What he's saying is he understands that Jesus is the greater king. He's the king that David was only a shadow pointing forward to. So this is the greater king who's been promised to God's people ever since David. Jesus is God's king sent from heaven to to save his people. So this blind man already knows more about Jesus than most of the other folks around. And so he cries out to him. But as he calls out to him, everybody around him is telling him to be quiet. They're telling him to stop screaming. So they're, they're saying, hey man, you're, you're being too over the top here. You're, you're getting on our, ner- on, on our nerves. You need to calm down. But look at how he responds to their, their rebuke. Middle of verse 39. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So they're telling him to be quiet. He responds by yelling even louder for one simple reason. He knows he needs Jesus and he doesn't care what other people think about that. He knows he needs Jesus and he doesn't care what other people think about that. Look at the second man, Zacchaeus, chapter 19, verse three. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So Zacchaeus, like the song says, he was short, right? He was a wee little man. So he has to go up ahead of the crowds. He knew he, he, knew he wouldn't be able to see Jesus. So he runs ahead. He climbs up in the tree. Now, in the ancient Near East, adults, especially men, did not run. So that was seen as a particularly, I kind of wish our culture still looked at it that way. I'm not going to lie. One quote, Martin Lloyd-Jones who, hey, is a trustworthy pastor. He's gone on to be with the Lord. He had this great quote. He was a medical doctor, too, where he said, uh, he said, don't run if you can walk, and don't walk if you can sit. And I feel like I want to get that as a sign, maybe, and put it up in the house. So anyway, adults in the ancient Near East, especially men, they didn't run. They certainly didn't climb trees. We understand that. So this adult man who's, who's a professional tax collector, he would have looked ridiculous doing these things. He would have looked completely dishonorable. But just like the blind man in the first sort, the story, Zacchaeus doesn't care. He knows he needs Jesus, and he doesn't care what other people think about that. And of course, this is a good test for us, right? If, if you understand yourself to be a spiritual beggar, So you know you're a sinner. You have to rely fully on the grace of God provided for you in Christ. If you would say that's the case, then can you think of times where you pursued Jesus even when it made you look silly to other people? Because if you're like me, you feel that rub. We don't want to look silly in front of other people. So there are times where, where you see the need to pursue Jesus in a particular way, but you pull back some. Because you don't want to look foolish. You don't want to look silly in front of other people. Can, can you think of a situation where you were like this blind man who everybody was telling to, to be quiet, but, but you kept hollering out for Jesus? So maybe it was a situation with parenting your children, where lots of folks around you were telling you to pursue some worldly way of thinking that was opposed to Scripture when it came to parenting, and you knew if you went with the Bible, you would look foolish to people around you, maybe even crazy. You'd look bad in their eyes. 
So in a situation like that, do you pursue Jesus or do you pull back so you don't have to look silly to the world? Or maybe it was at work where your coworkers were gossiping, maybe talking about something inappropriate they wanted you to join in. You knew if you abstained that they would see that as sort of judgment, maybe being holier than thou. Of course, you understand that's, that's not it. You just want to follow Christ. But you know it'll look like that to them. You know that they won't be pleased with you for that. So were you like the blind man where even though you felt that crowd being like, hey, this isn't a big deal, you kept saying, no, I've got to pursue Christ in this, even if it makes me look silly to everybody else. You can probably think of lots of different examples. This, this is our station in life, right? We're Christians. We're in the world. We're surrounded by people that are not interested in what the Bible says, aren't interested in pursuing Jesus. All sorts of opportunities where, where we're going to look silly in the Lord's eye or in the world's eyes. But the question is, are we pursuing Jesus, even if we look silly in their eyes? Now, now don't get me wrong. Whenever we're supposed to try to look foolish, sometimes Christians do that, where they try to look foolish or or they're completely uh, oblivious to the fact. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 tells us, as Christians, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So we want people to understand our pursuit of Jesus is entirely reasonable. It's entirely sane. In fact, pursuing Jesus is the most sane thing that a person can do. But see, if, if in our pursuit of Jesus, we look foolish to the folks around us, so be it. This blind man, he didn't care. This tax collector didn't care. They knew they needed Jesus more than they needed the praise of the world. And so they're willing to go to any possible length to get to him. And this all has been the first thing the Lord is teaching us this morning. Realize you are a spiritual beggar. Realize you're a spiritual beggar. But, but see, for the one who realizes this, our passage has good news for you. Look at what Jesus does in our second story. Chapter 19, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Look at what he does in our first story, chapter 18, verse 40. And Jesus stopped. Jesus stops for these two men. And, and this is the main point of these stories for us. If you realize you're a spiritual beggar, Jesus will always stop for you. Every single time. Now, now you may be here and you may be a non-Christian. Or you're, you don't know what you think about Jesus and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, why is it a big deal if Jesus stops? You know, I'm sure it was great to hang out with Jesus, but what does he really have to offer? Well, when Jesus stops for someone, he, he does two things. And the first thing is he saves them. And second, he transforms them. Those are the two things that we get from Christ that we can't get anywhere else. That's what happens when Jesus stops for us. You're saved and you're transformed. So first you're saved. So after Jesus has met Zacchaeus at his house, look at what he tells him. Chapter 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus says that by stopping for this man, he has been saved. Today salvation has come to this house. And of course, the way someone is saved is by their sins being paid for. So like we talked about earlier, we all are born with this sinful nature. Our sin merits God's wrath and punishment. That's what we deserve for it. So to be saved from that wrath and punishment, our sins have to be paid for. That's exactly why Christ came. This is the gospel. This is how Romans 5, 8 says it. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that means we've been given an innocent verdict because of Jesus' blood has covered our sins. We've now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus gives us. In Christ, our sin is wiped away. We no longer have that mark against us. We're no longer considered guilty in God's eyes. He's paid, Christ has paid for our sins. And the way to get Jesus's blood to count toward our sins is by placing faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by working hard. That's how every other religion sees it. Christianity is the one odd man out, which is a good sign that it's created by God. All these other religions do it exactly the same. Work hard, maybe you'll be good enough to attain a relationship with God. Christianity is the only one that says you could never do that. Not in a million years, not with a million lifetimes. God has to come down to us. And that's what he does. That's why we have to be forgiven of our sins at the front end of the Christian life. Not by our works, but by what Jesus did on the cross. And we trust in him alone for our salvation. So look at what Jesus says when he heals this man's blindness. Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. So it's his faith, it's his trust in Christ that has connected him to Christ and to salvation. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's what's available to you. Salvation is available to you. All your sins can be forgiven, past, present, and future, through trust alone in Christ alone. Not by trying to clean yourself up, working hard, doing good things. No, it's trust alone in the one who was perfect on our behalf. That's the gospel. If you want to hear more about that, talk to me after the service. Talk to another member of this church about trusting in Christ. And for those of us that have trusted in Christ, Jesus has stopped for us. And he will stop for you. Look at the first thing Jesus does in verse 40 after he stops. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. So he commands the blind man to be brought up to him so he can save him. And guess what? When Jesus, the Lord of the universe, commands something, he, he always gets it. So if you cry out to Christ to pay for your sins, he will pay for your sins. His blood will cover you. And, and all it takes is for you to be like this blind man, to realize you have no spiritual resources in yourself and that you have to trust in Christ alone to pay for your sins. He's faithful to do that. And as Christians, this is what has happened to us. This is our reality. Look at what our response to this forgiveness should be. Verse 43, and immediately recovered his sight and followed him, Christ, glorifying God. That's the proper response to Jesus paying for our sins. We should glorify God, meaning we should thank him for doing it and we should show off that good work to other people, show off the goodness of the gospel. So if you've had your sins paid for by Jesus, talk about that with your children. Encourage your spouse with that. Encourage your roommate. Share it with your coworkers. But, but for the spiritual beggar, Jesus doesn't just save us. He, he doesn't just pay for our sins. He also transforms us. He changes us. So for this blind man, he, he doesn't stay blind long. After meeting Jesus, he, he is given his sight back. His life is radically transformed. Now, that's not the typical way we're changed by meeting with Jesus, but the change we experience is no less miraculous. Look at the example we have in Zacchaeus, chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So look at how transformative Jesus is for this tax collector. Like, like we mentioned before, Zacchaeus had been involved in exploiting people, as almost all tax collectors were. 
He'd been doing it for years. But in a moment, after he encounters Christ, all of a sudden he's ready to sell half his goods, we're told, and, and to make restitution for his past sins against people. So in the last sentence of verse 8, he says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's an amazing thing. When Jesus saves us, he, he doesn't just send us away to do our own thing until he returns or until we die. No, he actually employs us to work for him for the good of his kingdom. So Zacchaeus is able to use his material possessions and his money for the good of serving Christ. We see the same thing in our first story. The, the blind man, he doesn't have any material goods or money, but he's got a voice. And Jesus uses that voice to bring others to glorify the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the question for you is, what do you have that you could let Jesus use for his kingdom? That you could allow the Lord to employ, to leverage for his glory. So probably a home to invite someone into so you can bless them with a meal, talk about the Lord, try to encourage them. Some, some possessions that you can use to help out a fellow believer or non-believer in your path who needs material help. Time that you can give to meet up with a fellow Christian, encourage them in the gospel pray for them, ask how you can be an encouragement for them, money that you could give to a family in the church that, that has need. This is part of the way Jesus changes us. He gives us a heart that wants to serve him, and, and then he employs us to do good, just like we see here with, with Zacchaeus. You don't see that kind of change happen much out in the world. You know, it's a, it's a hard thing to, to part with your money and your possessions, but Zacchaeus is, is ready to do it, and Jesus doesn't even have to ask him. He volunteers because he wants to give it to the poor. This man who had spent a lifetime loving himself, looking out only for himself, all of a sudden he has this change in heart where now he wants to love others. This is the kind of thing you see in Jesus' church because that's what he does. He changes people. Listen to how it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you've been saved by Jesus, you've also been recreated by Jesus, which means he's, he's working in you to make you look more like him, and he'll continue that work until you get to heaven. And, and this is the last thing we'll talk about this morning. Do you believe Jesus is changing you and that he can keep on changing you? Because it's so easy to forget that. Isn't that crazy? In a moment, we can forget it. In the morning, you can be so confident, the Lord is changing me. I have the spirit, he's working in me. And then by the afternoon, there's some particular sin struggle. And then you just think, this is never going to change. The Lord is never going to do anything here. So the question is, do you believe Jesus is changing you and will keep changing you? Or are you like the crowd around the blind man in the first story who says, give it a rest. Leave Jesus alone, right? Let him go on. He's not going to do anything for you. And of course, we understand that line of thinking, especially if you've experienced a lot of difficulty in some area of your life, but, but I hope you realize when you hear it how crazy it sounds. I hope you realize how crazy it sounds to think, leave Jesus alone, he's not going to do anything for you. That's crazy. I think that sometimes too, but, but that doesn't make it any less crazy. This is the same Savior who became a weak, humble man and came down to an utterly sinful world for you for me. It's the same Savior who lived a really hard life, was, was willingly 
wrongfully convicted, sentenced to a death penalty for us as sinners. The same Savior who died on the cross for us. By far, the most difficult work Jesus already did or has done for you is already done, right? The hardest thing Jesus will do for you, he already did it. So why would you doubt him now? Why would I doubt him now? We don't want to be like the crowd in our first story. We want to be like the blind man. Verse 39, and those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. So whatever area of life it is, confess your need and cry out to Jesus. Because Jesus has the same question for you that he asked the blind man in verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that crazy? He's the God of the universe. And he has that question for you and for me, sinful people. What do you want me to do for you? So give Jesus the answer to that question. You know, for example, Jesus, help me turn away from my anger. Jesus, help me turn away from my lust or my selfishness or my envy. Jesus, help me to stop loving money and possessions. Help me to be content with the life you've given me, whatever it is. He's saying, what do you want me to do for you? Cry out to Jesus for help in places where you need help. And as a Christian, the Lord gives us lots of practical ways to cry out, lots of practical ways to pursue Jesus. So you can't pursue him down the road hollering at him, right? Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. But you can seek him by reading his word. So holler out to Jesus by spending time daily in God's word, reading the scriptures. His power is revealed through his word. So we see when he heals the blind man in verse 42, he doesn't do anything with his hands. He speaks. That's how he heals him. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. That's the way he works in this world. It's through his word. So holler out to Christ by by reading the Bible. More than that, holler out to Jesus by, by doing what he says by actually obeying Jesus out of trust in him. Take take steps of faith by doing what Jesus says to do in particular situations. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to pursue Jesus. Climb the tree by praying to the Lord and and asking him to help you to change you in particular areas of, of life. Climb the tree by confessing your sin to fellow believers, looking for help and accountability. Call out to Jesus. But because if, if you're just feeling really bad about your sin, but you're not doing any of those things, you're really just letting Jesus walk past you. So don't do that. Follow the example of the men in these two stories. Out of your intense spiritual poverty, call out to Jesus in these ways. But again, we know when we call out to Christ, he will stop. Every time. He will change you. He'll grow you more into his image but we've got to look to Christ. We have to know we're a spiritual beggar because these are are the only folks Jesus stops for. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. If you're a spiritual beggar, Jesus will always stop for you. Let's pray.